Um, If we think of all the songs uh, that have ever been recorded across all of humanity, and we were to think about the topic of those songs and we were to categorize each of them, um, which do you think would be the biggest category of topic of songs um, ever written? Um, I don't think there would be any argument that uh, the topic of love wouldn't be the biggest category of all the songs that have been written, whether that's uh, songs uh, proclaiming um, love, reveling in love, or uh, wishing that they had love in their life, or even breakup songs uh, uh, in that kind of way. We think of even like story narratives, um, all movie plot lines. Uh, certainly not all of those are about love, uh, but if we look closely at them and we were to categorize them, um, I have no doubt that love w- wouldn't be at the center of, of most of, of the movies that we think of, even superhero movies, action movies. Uh, you know, Superman is motivated by his love for Lois Lane and even the Marvel at, of Endgame and, and things like that. Um, each of them thinking about their loved ones um, that might be missing and, and, and fighting for a future in which um, love prevails. And so when we think about our chapter this morning of, of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, we're continuing in our series of 1 Corinthians, this is often called uh, the love chapter or the chapter of love. No doubt you have heard it before, um, even if, if you're not as familiar with the scriptures, if you're a new Christian, even if you're not a Christian. Uh, listening this morning, you no doubt have, have heard the chapter uh, that Ali read this morning. You've probably heard it read at a wedding. It's quoted often in speeches. Um, it's, a, it's a familiar text uh, to humanity, and, and for good reason. Um, it's often included even in anthologies of literature, even on its own, just outright as a piece of literature. It's a beautiful piece of writing. And uh, I, my, my hope and prayer is this morning that our familiarity with the passage um, doesn't uh, cause us to be kind of blasé or, or think we've heard this before. I want us uh, to, to really uh, see with new fresh eyes this morning and pray that the Lord would, would grant us that. Um, because the context of this chapter isn't really romance. It's not romantic kind of love in the way that we think about it. It's not an, an eros or erotic romantic kind of love. It's not a phileo or brotherly kind of love. This is agape love. This is um, love that's not based on feelings, although it's, it isn't unemotional. This is steadfast, covenantal, unconditional love. Um, and it's this chapter in chapter 13, obviously that sits between chapter 12 and 14, but those two chapters, as we've seen the last two weeks, as we'll see the next two weeks, um, are really Paul's instruction on spiritual gifts and how the church is using their gifts in the context of serving one another. Um, if you've uh, been listening the last a few uh, during this, this sermon series, we'll understand the Corinthian context, context again. Um, this is a church that's uh, characterized by arguments, um, division, over who was most eloquent and aligning themselves uh, uh, with those people, uh, who was the smartest or the most spiritual, uh, who had the most money or power. Um, and their main concern really is, is, could be categorized by excellence of what set them apart, who is more excellent in which kind of ways. Um, and churches can get caught up in chasing excellence all the time. We lose sight of our main pursuit in a pursuit of excellence. There's nothing wrong with, with, with uh, wanting to do things well, um, uh, we should give the Lord our best effort um, for sure. And yet sometimes this um, pursuit of excellence can eclipse um, really what we are to be characterized by most 
as Christians. Even Jesus said that people would know that we're his followers by the way in which we love. Um, Indeed, Jesus says the greatest commands are to love God and to love our neighbor. And so as Paul's issue, um, he issues this corrective um, and he calls them to a more excellent way as we see at the very end of, of chapter 12. They're concerned with being most excellent. And he says, listen, we should earnestly desire these higher gifts and I will show you still a more excellent way. Um, He's concerned for them because lest in their pursuit of excellence, it all ends up counting as nothing. Nada, zilch. It's good for nothing. The excellent way is this indispensable way um, uh, that, uh, that we use our gifts, that we would pursue our gifts in such a way that isn't selfish, in a way that doesn't lead to an overestimate, overestimate, overestimation of some and an underestimation of others, some being elevated while others are being denigrated. This is leading to division and not to unity. It's leading to destruction and not edification, a tearing down of the church and not one of building up. And so let's look a little bit more closely this morning um, on, on why love matters Um, And that's where I want us to start, really, is why love matters. Look at the first three verses. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I want us to notice, first of all, the scope. He starts with tongues and he moves all the way to martyrdom. Um, All gifts uh, are are kind of included in this scope from the lesser to the the greatest, uh, sacrificing even our life. But he says all of these gifts without exercising, without them being exercised in love, count for nothing. They gain us nothing. Um, the gifts that he, he mentions here are probably the gifts that they most admired in, in Corinth. Certainly, as we see the first 12 chapters leading up to these, these are the things that are highlighted. These are the things that they are using to divide from one another. And here, Paul then is going to talk in his first person. If I speak in tongues, even the apostle Paul isn't exempt from this. He's not uh, talking down to them in a way that excludes him. He is counting himself among them. And so why does love matter? Um, And so let's kind of take a holistic kind of um, view of the examples that he gives here. Look at, you could kind of break these into three different categories. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. So first of all, he he looks at what the Christian says. They were obsessed in Corinth with impressive speech. Um, We saw again, they were aligning themselves around who was the most eloquent. People would make a living as orators at the time. And Paul says, you can say the right things and you can even say them impressively. But if we don't have love, we're just noise. We're just background noise. We're just like a clanging cymbal over and over and over again. It's not music, it's just noise. Loveless talk is meaningless in the kingdom of God. And I want us to think about that. Think about the next time um, that you go to fire off that tweet or Facebook comment. 
A lot of the ways that we talk and communicate aren't verbally anymore. Um, They're over our phone. It's over text. It's on social media. Um, And if I'm honest, some of the most disappointing times uh, that I've had on social media are not with non-Christians. It's not with atheists. It's not even people kind of taking a swipe at Christianity. The most disappointing times I have are seeing other Christians, especially leaders, um, respond with technical truth Things that you would, I technically agree with what they say, but done in a nasty or sarcastic tone, trying to score points, trying to win an argument, rather than to respond out of care, rather than taking due diligence to make sure that their message is actually, is actually motivated by love, wrapped in love so that it can be received in the right way. And even though we're technically right, even though we might have our right theology, even though we're saying the right thing, This passage in the scripture would say it counts for nothing. It accomplishes nothing of value in the the kingdom. It actually doesn't ring true, even though it might technically be true. And so we have to ask ourselves the kind of question, not just what am I saying, but why am I saying this? Is it motivated by love? Is it motivated by care for other people? Um, I would encourage you even just to go through Proverbs and look at how much the book of Proverbs talks about our speech and our wisdom in speech. Um, One of the Proverbs actually encourages us, uh, one of the ways that we can be wise on our speech is actually just to say less. And in a a culture where we feel like everybody has to be an expert on everything, um, everybody has to have an opinion on everything, um, sometimes the wisest thing we can do is to not say anything at all. Um, especially if we're unsure if our motive uh, or our motives are mixed. Then he turns his attention to what the Christian knows in verse uh, chapter two. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, even if I have all faith to remove a mountain. So what we know, Paul sees this gift as we're gonna see in chapter 12, as, we, as we're gonna see again in chapter four, Paul views this as the most beneficial gift to the church, this prophetic gift, the, the gift of knowledge in that sense. And he's using this kind of a superlative language, all knowledge, if we had all wisdom. Of course, that's impossible. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. So the knowledge that we have is really only the knowledge that God reveals to us. God is the only one who has all wisdom, who has all knowledge, who sees all things. But he says, even if we did have access to that, even if we were all knowing and all wise, if we didn't actually have the love that comes with that, it would count for nothing. Over and over again, we are told in the scripture um, that truth and love must not be separated. Um, that we're to speak, but we're to speak the truth, but we're to speak that truth in love. And there's a sense in which truth without love starts to cease to be true. Um, one person said we can speak God's word, but oftentimes it's not with the Lord's tone of voice. We want to speak his word, but we want to speak it in a way that is also true. Um, And that tone of voice comes from um, being motivated by love, speaking the truth in love. Oftentimes, we can represent God's revelation without any kind of reference to his character, without any kind of reference to his nature. And so the revelation of God, if it's not accompanied by the nature of God, um, falls flat. It's It's not completely true because God's nature 
his actual, who he is at his core, as he's revealed that to us, is love itself. First John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. That's pretty straight up. That's pretty bold. Why? Because God is love. He, he is love. And so if we claim to know God, but we don't actually love, uh, John would say it's not God that you know, <laughs> because the God that you know is love itself. Paul will say this again in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Verses 15 to 16, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. When each part is working properly, now this is Paul's main concern for the Corinthians, each part's not working properly, they're divided. But when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up the main purpose of our gifts. How? In love. In love. Speaking the truth in love causes us to grow up in every way, to mature into Christ who holds his body, the people, joined together, which is equipped. And when that each part is working, when each of us are using our gifts in love, when that's properly working, the body grows and it builds itself up in love. Not just building itself up in truth. And so what we know is important, but how we know that and how we communicate that is um, also important. And so the prophet, those of us uh, that have the responsibility of communicating um, the, the, the word of God, The prophet who ministers in love wants to build up his hearers. He's not ultimately concerned, he or she's not ultimately concerned with building themselves up, with making themselves look good, with being in the spotlight. The prophet is marked by humility and compassion, not arrogance and pride. And when we are marked by arrogance and pride, it counts for nothing. Uh, One commentator said, intelligence minus love equals ignorance. They have to be held together. When we foreground our knowledge and we background love, it's nothing. They have to be held um, equally together. And that's the challenge um, for us, especially those of us uh, that use these gifts of of teaching, of knowledge, in that kind of way. It's a challenge for me. Um, I tend to be a person who can kind of see the truth kind of fairly clearly and quickly. Um, And as I mature and as I've grown um, and had to do this longer and longer, I'm more not just convinced but convicted that how we carry and communicate truth is as important as what we communicate. Um, It's an area that I want to continue to mature in as a pastor whose responsibility is to care for the flock. Um, For us as elders, that's our, our, our call is to care for the flock. And we do that not just by stewarding the truth well, but by stewarding the truth in love well. And then in verse three, um, uh, what the Christian does. And so what the Christian says, verse one, what we know, verse two, and what we do in verse three. Even if I give all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have, lo- but have not love, I gain nothing. That's, that's, that's bold, isn't it? Because surely extreme generosity, I'm gonna give away all of my wealth or even if I sacrifice myself as a martyr, surely that's the ultimate proof of spirituality, is it not? And Paul says, nope, it's actually not. 
We have examples of this, don't we? Ananias and Sapphira, they come with a a false sense of generosity. They want to be seen to be giving more than what they actually are. Their motive isn't actually um, care um, for their brothers and sisters and their generosity. Their motive is to be seen as being generous. It's a false generosity and it costs them their actual life. Martyrdom without enduring the martyrdom with love, he says, is nothing. We have two great examples of people who, who gave their life um, whilst doing that motivated by love. Um, we have Stephen, the first martyr, recorded in Acts chapter 7. And what does he say as he's being stoned to death? He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He's not gritting his teeth in, in anger. Um, he's actually looking at the people who are taking his own life and asking the Lord not to hold it against them. That's a person who's filled with the spirit and not just any spirit, but the spirit of Jesus because that's his example, right? This is exactly what Jesus does on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. People who are literally laying down their life, but clearly laying down their life out of motivation of love. And so what is our motivation? Why do we do what we do? What is our motivation for serving? The Pharisees are a stark example of that, aren't they? They wanted to be seen to be spiritual people. They prayed in the streets. They prayed loudly. When they gave, they wanted to make sure those coins clinked the other coins. And Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're just dead. You're spiritually without life. It counts for nothing. And so this is why love is important. But let's ask the question then, well, what is, what is that? Let's, what is love? Let's look at it a, a little bit closely. There's times where um, in my sermon notes, I've had songs in my head. What is love is another one. I won't actually sing it for you, but um, I've wanted to break into Tina Turner a few times uh, in preparation and, and all sorts of things, but I'll spare that, you, uh, spare that for you this morning and leave uh, the singing to John and Allie. But what is love? Verses four to seven. Love is patient. We get this beautiful description. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What a list. Um, it's interesting too that he kind of, a lot of the list is, is positioned in the negative, um, probably because it is a corrective letter. He's trying to correct their understanding of what it actually means. And so he's giving them the definition, but he starts off in some positive ways. Uh, love is patient. Literally, it's long suffering. It suffers long. It bears up under whatever it takes to go on serving Jesus and his body. Are we patient as we love other people? Um, I have to admit, starting to love people is super easy. Continuing to love people um, when when it's difficult, when it's challenging, when they don't reciprocate, that's harder, isn't it? To be long-suffering, to bear up under whatever it takes to go on serving people by loving Jesus and loving them. It's kind, It's actively doing good, even if those people are seen to be our enemies. We're to love even our enemies. We're to extend kindness to our enemies. It's kindness that that calls us to respond to God, doesn't it? It doesn't envy. 
We looked at this last week. It's not inferior. It doesn't have an, love doesn't have an inferiority complex. It doesn't wish it was someone else. He's calling them to be glad to receive the gifts that they have been given from God because it's God who dispenses as he wishes and, and freely. It's the spirit who does that. We're glad to receive those gifts from God and then use them in the service for other people. We're not envious of other people. Love, when we're motivated by love, we're not looking at other people and wishing we were them. I wish they had their gifts. I wish I could, I could, I could exercise the gifts that they have. We then neglect our own gifts because we're busy looking at other people. The opposite of them, then it doesn't boast, right? It doesn't have a, love doesn't have a superiority complex either. It's not, it's not um, self-centered, it's, it's self-effacing. It's considering other people. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. Proud Christians are self-confident and use gifts to elevate themselves. Um, to, to put other people um, below them. Um, and, and, and it's crafty in that way. It's subtle in that way. Um, but it's arrogant. Sometimes it's easy to see arrogance when it's kind of you know, on full display and, and, and not self-aware in that kind of way. But arrogance has uh, a subtle side to it as well. What are we boasting in? What are we confident in? Is it ourself? Are we confident in our gifts? In, that, in, a, in an unhealthy way, or are we motivated by love, humbly receiving those gifts and using them in the service of other people? Love isn't rude. Um, it, it's it's, it's unchristlike. Rudeness is, is unchristlike. It's dismissive. It's sharp. It's concerned with self more than others. It's inconsiderate. He says, love doesn't insist on its own way. And again, um, we've, we've seen this. I've seen this in churches. Well, I need to use my gifts. God's given me these gifts, so I need to be able to use them in the way that I feel like I'm able to use them. It doesn't insist, love doesn't insist on its own way. It's not about trying to build our empire around ourself and gifts. It's others-centered. It's not irritable. Love has a long fuse. Now, I gotta be honest, this one convicted me because uh, I'm not normally an irritable person, but when I'm under stress, definitely an irritable person, right? Um, and I think this kind of parents, this is gonna be us under this kind of quarantine. Kids are gonna be out of school for what, four or five months. Um, people trying to work from home. And um, I've already, just, there's just times when I've been irritable because I'm under stress. It's a new situation for all of us. I haven't been patient. I haven't been kind. I've been irritable. And so it's a challenge for us to actually love even our kids. Sometimes it's hard, the people it's hardest to extend this kind of love to are the people that we have to live with. And yet this is what we're called to do, um, to serve one another in this way. It's not resentful. We're not serving. Um, serving without the motivation of love equals kind of resentment, doesn't it? We, we serve, but under kind of compulsion, not with joy, not willingly, right? We have an attitude, man, I got to serve in this kid's ministry. I'm missing the service. You know, I could be in there with my, my, my peers and friends kind of enjoying the service. I'm back here stuck with these kids. We kind of resent that. I have to get up early just to come and make coffee and give it to people. Instead of actually seeing our kids as important and a way to serve and to love them, to, to minister to our body, 
Um, to be able to get up and to, to give someone a, a cup of coffee as they come in and minister with hospitality. Even Jesus said to give somebody a cup of cold water in my name. Uh, we live in a climate where I think we'd rather have a cup of hot coffee than cold water, but, but I think the, the point applies the same, isn't it? These things, when they're done with love, aren't small, they're not minuscule, they're not secondary tasks. They're exactly how God has called us to love and serve one another. Love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It's not, we're not talking about tracking down every single person's fault and sin, but it rejoices in, in the truth. It delights in what God delights in. We're called to, to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we do that because we're not selfish. We're not uh, resentful. We're not envious. And so we can enter into the joy of other people. When they win, the whole body wins. Um, when parts of our body, uh, the body of Christ, our church, um, win, we all win. When one suffers, we all suffer. We saw that last week. And then he, he, it, it, this rhetorical flourish at the end, love bears, it believes, it hopes, it endures all things. This isn't a naive or a gullible kind of love. It's not a love that, that just kind of gets, Paul hasn't got carried away with his rhetoric here. It's not gullible, it's not naive. But it bears all things. It hopes for the best. It endures, it believes all things. Uh, Calvin put it this way, he said, love would rather be deceived by its gentleness of heart than injure a brother by suspicion. Let me repeat that. Love would rather be deceived by its gentleness of heart than injure a brother by suspicion. What is our natural disposition to others? Is it one who gives people the benefit of the doubt? Is, is it that love that's covering a multitude of sins? Or are we nitpicking? Are, are, do we, do we uh, demand preciseness from other people that we ourselves wouldn't live up to? Man, we need this kind of love now more than ever, don't we? In this kind of coronavirus quarantine, we'll all be asked to bear, believe, hope, and endure things that we haven't had to in any other kind of way in our lifetime. My prayer for us, not just us at Village at our local church, but that the, the church globally would pass the test of love. Um, that this would be a time for those who are marked by love um, to, to exemplify what it actually means to bear all things, to endure all things, to hope all things. We might ask, why is Paul focusing on this in the midst of all of this? When we think about the list that he's just um, given us, a description of love, when we think about how he started, uh, started this off, about how we speak, how we know, how we do, all of these things and how those things are all couched in our motive of love, think about what's led us up to this point so far as we look back over our series. He starts off um, a description of how they are. They were of the flesh. They were infants in Christ because there's jealousy and strife among you. That's chapter three. They were puffed up in favor of one person over another person. That's chapter four, verse six. Uh, he, he, he says, some of you are arrogant, brash, and boastful in your speech, chapter 4, 18 to 20. There was immorality in the church, a kind that even the pagans would be uh, uh, not tolerating in chapter 5. They were taking their disputes of one another to pagan courts for judgment, holding on to grievances, keeping records of wrongs, brother going to law against brother in chapter 6. 
They're puffed up by their knowledge and forcing this knowledge upon their weaker brothers in ways that they, they were compromising their conscience and causing them to stumble in verse eight, in chapter eight. They're abusing the Lord's table. They're not valuing one member over another member of the body in chapter 11. They're despising the less advantage, looking down on them is not worth bothering about in, verse, in chapter 12. This is what's led Paul up to chapter 13. You put all those things along 13 and we start to understand what Paul is trying to correct here what he's trying to bring to their understanding and drive deep into their heart. Their behavior was the polar opposite of what we've seen in chapter 13. They're not not a people marked by Christian love. All of their gifts, all of their experiences, all of their wisdom and knowledge, therefore, up until this point, Paul says, is reduced to nothing. It's zero. It's a stinging rebuke on the Christian church. And it testifies to their immaturity, which is why he calls them infants in Christ. What would be Paul's assessment of our church? Would it be people who are, who are marked by immaturity? Or would it be people marked by maturity? And how do we determine that? Because most of the time, if we're thinking about, are we a mature church or an immature church? We would go to probably the things that the Corinthians would. Um, do they know the truth? What is their knowledge? Are they able to communicate that well? Do they have a, 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 an excellent church experience? Is their worship um, an ecstatic kind of experience in that kind of way? And Paul says, listen, all of that is fine, but it's, it all counts for nothing if it's not imbued with the love of Christ. If it's not motivated by love, if we're communicating our truth out of a, a, a harshness and not one motivated by love and care for each other. Uh, will we be known as Christ says will we be known? Not by uh, how good our preaching is, although it's important, how good our worship is, although that's important. We're to ascribe glory to the Lord in our call of worship this morning, but he says how people will actually know your followers of Jesus is how well you love one another. And when we love one another, um, all of those things become secondary. Important, but Secondary. And so I want us to close in the last uh, section of this, verses eight to 13, by looking at this everlasting nature of love. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. I think one sobering benefit from this pandemic um, that we find ourselves Um, dealing with is it is going to be reminding uh, the world of just how fragile we are, of just how finite we are, that death is hot on our heels. All of our gifts, all of our skills, all of our actions are perishable. None of our acquired skills will help us avoid death eventually. Death will come for us all at some point in time. Um, If you remember from our series, uh, 
in Ecclesiastes. We looked at that, right? Life is but a vapor. It's, it's, everything is hevel. It's fleeting. But there is one thing that is non-perishable. Paul says, along with our soul, it's love. Love, according to verse 8, never ends. Remember, he's, he's speaking in the context of them pursuing his gifts, of which he encourages them to do, but to do in the right way. He says all of these gifts that are so greatly valued by the Corinthians, their prophecy, their tongues, their knowledge, all of these will eventually cease. And so then to elevate them above that which will last into eternity is a massive error and it will shape your life in disastrous ways. Our prophecy, our tongues, our knowledge will pass away. And even now, we know, he says, we prophesy, we teach in part. It's partial. It's not perfect. It's partial. It's why um, normally um, I preach from this pulpit and we read the scripture from that pulpit um, back there. My words are imperfect. They're partial. Now, a lot of times, um, uh, verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So just a side note here. Um, what is the perfect? Um, over the, it's, a, it's a very fairly new uh, theological position, um, but really probably over the last 80 years, maybe 100 at the most, um, uh, a, a dispensational kind of way of understanding it or a cessationist kind of point of view who would say all the, 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 cease, the, the, the sign gifts have ceased would point to the perfect being the scripture. So now that we have the perfect, we have the completed word of God, these things have passed away. I honestly don't know how you can come to that conclusion um, hermeneutically, even within this passage. The perfect that he's referring to, when the perfect comes, isn't the completed canon of scripture. It's Jesus himself and his kingdom in full. You notice here the contrast that he gives. Now we see partially, but then face to face, whatever that perfect thing is, we'll have a face and we'll be able to look into it. And he gives these two contrasting images between where we are now and what we are looking forward to and how hope Will, or how uh, love will be the thing that remains into eternity. The two contrasting I images, one of childhood and adulthood that he starts off with, he says, however much we mature in this life, it will only be a childhood compared to the full mature adult status and the new creation that we'll find ourselves in. Their bickering, their infighting, their jealousy, their pride, their factions, all belong in the nursery <laughs> of childhood. They need to grow up and mature. But even in our maturity, it's partial. It's not full, it's not complete. The second image that he gives is one of a mirror um, as contrasted to seeing something face to face. Now, a mirror in their time wouldn't be like our um, mirrors, which are obviously allow us to see a little more clear than they would have. Um, it would have been a, a, a polished metal. Um, so you, you'd have been able to see a reflection um, but it certainly wouldn't um, be uh, flawless in any kind of way. You wouldn't have got uh, a detailed kind of replica of your face. Um, if, I don't know, I, I don't see them here much, but um, uh, you'd see these kind of uh, mirrors sometimes. I remember taking uh, long road trips in America and you'd have these petrol stations on the side of the road and they were pretty gross to be honest with you. Uh, 
uh, and you go into the bathroom and it was probably like a bathroom in a prison. So there wasn't anything that was breakable in there. And the mirror was just like polished metal enough to kind of give you a reflection, but certainly not like a, a proper mirror. And this is what they would have had. The distortions that were seen in a metal mirror are going to be replaced, he says, with a flawless knowledge. And he says the knowledge that we'll have then, that we will know as we have been fully known. That God fully knows us. Um, and one day we will have that experience of knowing him the way that he knows us now. And then how, how does he end this in verse 13? So now... I think the now that he's referring to is probably our present state of imperfection where we see imperfectly and faith, hope, and love is needed. It's required. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. And it's the greatest because it's the thing that doesn't pass away. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We need faith, we need hope in something that is, uh, that is coming, that we're assured of things that, that are coming but are, are not here yet. There are things that we can't see yet. When Jesus returns uh, in the new creation, faith in this sense is no longer needed. When the reality is fully realized, hope is no longer needed when what we have hoped for is the reality that we now live in. It's here. The future hope is now, or will be, our present reality at that time. But love, he says, never ends. That's why it's listed as the greatest. It's why it's the most excellent way. This is love. This is love, one that never ends. This is the love our world is longing for, is it not? This is the love that we hope for. It's the love we write songs about. It's the plot lines of, mu- of, of movies. We're wired a certain way to long for this love. It's the sacrificial love that it's, that's uh, at the center of most of our cultural narratives, most of, most of our cultural arcs of the stories that we tell. But why is it so elusive then? Why does it feel like we're constantly trying to grasp at it, but we're never fully there? Why do we fail to love this way so often? We love this chapter, and yet, as we go through that list, I could just check off all the ways that I fail this list. I'm hoping to grow in these things. I'm hoping that I'm mature in these things. I'm hoping that I'm better at these things now than I was before, but I also see the gulf of where I just fall so short in in, in this. Times where I am rude, where I'm unkind, where I'm not patient, where I'm not long-suffering, where I might be arrogant, where I'm not rejoicing with people, but I'm resentful instead. Why Why do we fall so short so often? And it's because we're locating it in the wrong place. We're looking for, uh, to draw that kind of love, the source of that within ourselves. And when love is located in ourselves, it automatically has an expiration date. It automatically is imperfect. It's partial, as Paul says. It's not full, it's not complete. The love that Paul speaks of is the love of God and that happens then outside of ourselves. That kind of love happens 
to us. It doesn't, it doesn't happen from us, it happens to us. It's not the words that we say. It's not the feelings that we feel. It's not the deeds that we do as we see in those first three verses. This kind of love is bigger than all of those things. And if love then is located outside of ourself, if love outside of ourselves is to remain, if it's to be eternal, then it's only God himself is qualified to fill that role. Only God is an eternal being. The one whose love, whose very nature is love is to be the source of that. He is love. That's his very nature of who he is. His wrath, his holy, just, righteous wrath must be provoked. God isn't wrath in his nature. It can be provoked. But his nature, his, his solid state, as it were, is love. This is the love that fills our life with meaning. And not just temporary meaning, not a fleeting kind of meaning, but eternal meaning. To exercise this love is to have it transform us. We need to hear what love has done for us before we're able to operate in this kind of love. This is God's posture towards us in our broken world. He is all of these things. We could, we could just replace the word love um, with, with Jesus. We could replace it with, with God. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. No, he actually laid down his life for us. He takes on the role of a servant, not demanding his own way. In his love, God is patient with the sinner. In his love, God is kind. And that kindness then leads us to repentance as we respond to his love. In his love, God endures all of our sinfulness. What incredible good news. We cannot exasperate God. My kids can exasperate me. I can, I can be worn down. My love can be, can be worn down and I can respond in ways that I shouldn't respond, but that's impossible with God. The impossibility of our love, our limits to love are held in the possibility of his. And that's where we have to locate our love. It's the source from which we must draw from. It's not within ourselves. Ours is imperfect, it's temporary, it's partial. We must receive his love. And the Bible, the word the Bible uses for that is salvation. We respond to his love by repenting of our sin, by admitting that, we, we, that our love is not bottomless, that we have failed in, in all of these different ways, that we turn from our way of trying to love other people in all of our imperfectness. We cast ourselves on him. We admit um, our need for him, our sin, um, our sinfulness in this, and we respond to his love and he gives us to us in salvation. Then we rest in his love and this causes transformation in us. And then as we're changed, this leads to our sanctification, our maturing. And again, that maturity builds us up as we're using our gifts, operating out of the love of God, not out of our own, but out of his. And we long, don't we? We long for that day um, where all these other things come to an end, that we, we uh, grow up into full maturity in Christ. And so the question is, have you received that love? Has his kindness led to repentance? Are you a part of the family of God? Are you a part of his, his body? Have you received that? 
If you have, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, are you remaining in it? Are we abiding in it? Jesus tells us to, John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. How does the Father love Jesus? The answer to that is perfectly, completely, wholly. And that's the way that he has loved you. And so his, his command to us then, John 15, 9, is then abide in my love, remain in my love, dwell in my love. And that's the key, isn't it? The key for us to love other people well is not to love them out of our own strength, is not to love them um, out of our giftedness in some kind of way. It's to love them with the love of Christ. And to do that, we abide in his love. We remain in his love. Do we do that? Are we reminded of his love for us as, as we spend time in his word, as he reveals his, his nature to us? As we listen to his spirit, um, prompt us, correct us, guide us, lead us into repentance by his kindness, by his mercy, his long suffering, love to us. Maybe sometimes we doubt that. Maybe sometimes we, we're not abiding in his love when we doubt that. What do we do? We come back to the gospel again. We come back to the greatest evidence of his love for us. Maybe the most well-known, maybe the most quoted verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved you. He so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is eternal love. It's the eternal love of God that we, we receive, the eternal love of God, that we get to spend eternity with him, not eternity separated from him, separated from that. And so our response this morning to be more loving is to abide in the love of God. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, this list will be impossible. We'll always be frustrated. We'll continue to be frustrated in, in trying to have a love that is inaccessible to us because we have rejected the very source of that love, God himself. And so the call today then is for us to, to respond in receiving God's love for us for the first time in, in that way, that we repent of our sin. We ask the Lord for this kind of um, grace that we would receive Jesus, his gift to us as, as uh, the greatest gift of love, the greatest expression of love the universe has ever known. And for, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, um, that we would remain in his love, that we would rest in his love. That's the only way we're getting through life. That's the only way we're gonna get through the next few months. Um, it's why we wanna encourage each other uh, in that as we try to stay connected over technology and things like that, why we want to um, help nudge us and remind us in those things through uh, some devotionals that we'll produce and, and send out, that we're abiding in his love because that's, why, that's how we'll get through these things. That's how we'll hope all things, endure all things. It's how we'll be patient with one another. <laughs> how I'll, I'll not be arrogant. It's how we will bear all things. It's how my wife will do that with me and my kids will have to do that with me. How we'll have to do that with each other and our neighbor. It's how we love the Lord and how we love our neighbor is by abiding in his love. One of the ways that we continue to remind each other of that and experience this means of grace um, is by reminding of uh, ourselves of the greatest expression of his love, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us.
And so we're gonna do that um, together. I know we're, we're not here together to, to, re, to receive bread and wine together, but hopefully you've uh, prepared for that as, as we've tried to let you know ahead of time. And so as um, John and Allie come to lead us again in this next song, um, can we just do that together um, with your family, whoever you've gathered together this morning? Um, as, as, as you hear um, sing, as we sing, can we just pronounce those words to each other as we serve each other communion? Um, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The greatest expression of love the world has ever known, the world will ever know, um, represented in bread and wine, body and blood, broken and poured out, out of love for you. May we abide in his love this morning. May you receive his love new and fresh once again so that we would respond in loving God and neighbor um, in all the ways that God has gifted us to do, uniquely he has gifted us to do. Um, and as we look to, uh, in the next couple of weeks, more specifically at what each of these gifts are, may this be at the forefront of our mind. May this be the filter in which we see and receive all of these things through. How can I love other people? How can I love God by using the way that he has gifted me um, to build up and strengthen my brothers and sisters in Christ? Um, let's come to the table together.